This is Philosophy Takes on the News. Hello and welcome to Philosophy Takes on the News. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent. We're recording on the morning of Thursday, the 8th of December, 2022. This is the week that saw the African Union summit take place in Ivory Coast. Protests against the current regime continue in Iran and the UK Labour Party produced a report with a range of recommendations for constitutional reform. So this week, we're going to think about those constitutional reforms And we may be picking up a story from a couple of weeks ago about Sam Bankman-Fried and the collapse of his cryptocurrency exchange, FTX. We'll also see what else we get onto, as always. Indeed, this is a special episode, because as well as the topics just mentioned, we'll have a bit of a roundup of the year, as this is the final philosophy takes on the news of 2022. Everyone, of course, looks forward to Christmas, the festive fun and the family joy. But Christmas can be a time of sadness and disappointment as well for many people. The unwanted gifts, the half-eaten rich food that makes you feel sick, the emptiness and sadness at the heart of what it's supposed to be a wonderful time. Which, of course, brings me to this week's guests. Let's see what Santa has in his sack for this special episode. Well, we have Fiona McPherson, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Glasgow and President of the British Philosophical Association. Hi, Fiona. Hi, Simon. Nice to be here. And we have Vittorio Bufaki from University College Cork. Hi, Vittorio. Hi, Simon. And last but by no means least, we've got Gerald Lang, uh, Associate Professor at the University of Leeds. Hi, Gerald. Hi, Simon. Hi, everyone. Uh, And we were going to be joined by Rebecca Roach as well from Royal Holloway, but she has woken up with a bit of a bug and a podcast unfriendly cough. Um, So I'm hoping when you're listening to this, Rebecca, you're feeling a lot better. Okay, so let's get to our our first item then. Um, Previous Prime Minister Gordon Brown produced a lengthy and detailed report for the current Labour Party outlining many recommendations for constitutional reform relating to power devolving to the home nations and the local regions, reform to the House of Lords and so on. Um, Gerald, do you raise this for us? Do you want to say a bit more, please? Yeah, so it it seems to be a pretty wide-ranging document, and the emphasis is on rebalancing and the decentralisation of power. So Brown's hypothesis is that uh, Britain's woes are caused in part by over-centralisation in Westminster and Whitehall, and that if power was restored to the regions and the devolved governments were strengthened and protected against incursions from Westminster, things will be um, a lot better. So, I mean, Keir Starmer hasn't accepted all of this yet, though they're very likely to be inputs into uh, the Labour manifesto in, I I imagine, 2024. Um, But one thing he does quite quickly, uh, he has quite quickly embraced, is the uh, idea that the House of Lords in its present form should be scrapped. So Starmer described it as indefensible. And the problem is, is that the House of Lords isn't elected. It's not elected by us. So how could a second chamber that's unelected by us sustain the idea that we're in a proper and properly regulated democratic system? I'm not, I'm not hostile 
to that, actually. But I don't feel it strongly that the second chamber, the House of Lords, should be elected. I mean, the idea is the House of Commons is elected, and that's the source, the primary source of legislation. And the function of the House of Lords, as I understand it, is to filter that legislation, to scrutinise it, uh, to pay deep attention to it, to make sure it's coherent and consistent and tidy. And the people who populate the House of Lords are qualified to do that. This is the idea because of, you know, long and distinguished careers in politics or business or academia or um, as members of faith communities. That's what qualifies them to do that scrutinizing job. Now, it's not so we could elect that. But but why? I mean, the democratic system requires lots of people who aren't directly elected in order to make it work. We don't uh, directly elect civil servants after all. And, and that means that means there isn't, I think, a decisive case for thinking that the, the House of Lords or that second chamber also has to be directly elected. I mean, what, why is that so obvious? So that's, that, that's the point. I mean, it's just a question, really, rather than uh, an argument against it. I'm just a bit puzzled. Okay, thanks, Gerald. Uh, Vittorio, Fiona, any thoughts from either of you? Fiona. Um, So I would agree with Gerald on the point about democracy. So it seems to me that there's not sort of one iconic form of democracy that is democracy. And if you don't live up to that, then you don't have democracy. Democracy has come in all shapes and sizes and forms. And I think that if you had a system where you elect the first chamber and then various things are in place, for example, uh, for those people to elect a second or, or to nominate, sorry, not elect, to nominate uh, people uh, for a second chamber, I think that, you know, with respect to democracy, that's a, a reasonable system. Um, and I wouldn't think of it as, I think a lot of people would tend to think, well, it'd be much more democratic if we elected the second chamber. I'm, I'm not sure that that is true. I just think it's a different form of democracy. However, I think there are other reasons to think that the House of Lords really needs a shake-up. So um, if you look at who's in the House of Lords, there's uh, the bishops of the Church of England. Uh, There's a whole bunch of people. uh, In fact, the vast majority are people who are nominated by politicians and in particular the the parties who um, who are in power. And then there are a few people nominated by a special committee who are um, sort of set up to try and ensure that the right sort of expertise gets, gets into the House of Lords. And I think when you look at the makeup of the House of Lords, I would say it's not representative of our society. I mean, to have, say, the bishops of the Church of England forming a a cohort doesn't seem to reflect um, our nation. Uh, There was just statistics uh, released the other day saying that we're no longer a majority Christian nation and um, the Church of England is only one church uh, even amongst the Christian churches um, in our society. I think that there's an old boy network that gets people in uh, to the House of Lords, not because these are the best people to to do the job, not because these people have the best expertise that we need and uh, so on, but but because politicians um, give jobs to the boys and I don't think it's very good. So I think that there's there's a really good reason to have transformation of the House of Lords, to have transformation of the process by which people get in there. Uh, so I would be in, in favour of reform in that way. An interesting question for me is whether it's right to 
have people who go into the House of Lords go in for life, as is uh, at present. Um, one reason that's tricky is that you might think, well, maybe you should just do a stint and step down. After all, most of the committees uh, that we all serve on, you serve for four years or three years or five years, whatever it is, and then uh, your peers maybe get to let you have another stint, but then you know it's time to move on and other people get to contribute. However, there's some reasons to have people sit on committees for life when they build up knowledge and expertise um, and when they don't have to think of um, serving a constituency by means of bowing to what the constituency wants because they need re-election. So whether people serve for life, whether they're elected, whether, you know, these are all very, very difficult questions, but I think there's no doubt that the House of Lords needs a shake-up. Great, thanks Fiona. Victoria, any thoughts from you? Yes, I agree with Fiona that democracy comes in many different shapes and sizes. There's not one form of democracy. But looking at the UK from a um, European perspective, the House of Lords is is, is the least of the problems. Um, I mean, the um, you know the unwritten constitution, as we've seen in the last couple of years, is problematic. You have a system where a party that is elected by roughly thirty percent, thirty five percent of the people, has total control um, of the government. Uh, the system is really not built for coalitions, um, and so there is a disproportionate amount of power in the hands of a minority. So one way to think about democracy in the Republican tradition um, is in terms of checks and balances. So the House of Lords is necessary to give a little bit of, of a check on, on what uh, the House of Commons can do. And it seems to me that in terms of reforming the House of Lords, I mean, the question is not whether it should be elected or non-elected, because actually many systems have a mixed system where you have a majority of people elected and then you have um, some people that are there because of their contribution to, to the common good and society. And maybe there's a scope for that. But the way things are at the moment, I think the scope for clientelism is just overwhelming, as we have seen in recent days. I mean, it just becomes an excuse to give people a role in exchange for party funding. So I think there's a lot of rot <laughs> that it's always been there, um, but now it's even more visible than it has been in the past. But but so so I think it is time for, for reforming. You know, there are only three countries in the world that have an unwritten constitution um, in New Zealand and the UK and Israel. And historically, the only other country that had an um, unwritten constitution was, was the Roman Republic. And of course, it didn't end well for the Romans. Um, so, um, so, yes, certainly. Uh, that yeah yeah I would say the House of Lords needs to be reformed, but there may be more than that that needs to be done. Yeah, Rome Republic was glorious while it lasted, though, Vittorio. That's all I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So so thoughts from me. I mean, I, yeah, I'm a big fan of of Second Chamber for the reasons uh, you've outlined. And going back to to Gerald's question and thinking about what what Fiona um, said, I think that the main case to be made is is the overwhelming negative one right which is it definitely needs reform i mean as vittorio said there's a lot of rot there 
But whether it's directly elected, I think, then is 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 moot. I mean, something we haven't mentioned is, but I think is is often a worry with second chambers is if it's directly elected, um, then it's a a significant source of power um, in the system, and you could end up with uh, situations of political gridlock, and that's often a, a, a kind of uh, worry about some systems, such as such as the US, even if the the timing of the different elections is 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 different between the House and the and the Senate. So I think some sort of mixed system is is probably probably right. I think that the interesting thing though is uh, something we haven't addressed, but which is. A key question is um, if there are elections or partial elections for a, for a second chamber, who who does the electing? Does it have to be through the the same franchise as the as the the um, the lower chamber? That in this case the House of Commons, or is it a different sort of different restricted um, uh, set of voters? And that that then creates a kind of different uh, kind of power uh, base, as it were. Um, and also, then there's certain sorts of people that are elected. So, so Gordon Brown's very keen on on there being representation from from the regions. I think that the key thing for me, though, is not so much the House of Lords, but something that Victoria hasn't mentioned is that PR isn't mentioned at all in the Brown report. And so, the whole voting system might might need a bit of an overhaul. But the UK's been around that block quite recently. Sorry, Gerald, do you want to come back in? Yeah. So, I I think there are signs that we we agree on this, uh, which is disappointing, of course. But um. There you go. So I think the problem seems to be the composition of that second chamber. So there are, as Vittorio says, sources of rot, jobs for the boys. It's not representative population. So that needs an overhaul. That needs to be revised. I, I take it there should be, you know, a special scrutiny. I mean, there should be better processes for putting people who are genuinely representative of their communities and have genuine expertise into that chamber. I agree with you, Simon, that if it's an elected, if it's elected by the general population, then it's a further source of power, which is probably unwelcome. I think, I think like, like Fiona, I feel a little divided on whether the appointment should be permanent, which insulates them in uh, you know um from sort of popular populist opinion and support that seems to be a good thing but at the same time it weakens our ability to you know inject new talent and new forms of representativeness into that chamber which seems to be a drawback so so i don't again maybe a mixture of temporary appointments and, and longer term appointments but yes you're right simon that PR wasn't mentioned, and that that does seem to be the key to a better democratic system overall. Uh, Vittorio? Playing um, political fantasy, um, which I think it's part of the um, utopian tradition in political thought. I mean, it's it's, it's a golden opportunity to actually do something very radical, Um, not only proportional representation, God forbid, but, you know, opening it up to 16-year-olds to vote, I mean, it is an opportunity to actually try something very different um, and, and bringing democracy um, to cohorts of people that have been excluded so far. Yeah. And of course, there are a few uh, people, indeed Martin O'Neill, who was on our World Cup special, who are, who are quite keen on going below 16 and extending it to 10-year-olds or 8-year-olds. Um, there's, there's quite a bit of a movement now, both in philosophers and political scientists, who are thinking about these more radical options. 
but Gordon Brown doesn't mention anything about about that. Um, so one one of the things shall I take us on to onto a, another topic? Given we're in so much agreement, uh, they should you know Gordon Brown should just have listened to us. Perhaps perhaps we'll have him on on the program in the new year. Uh, if you're listening, Gordon, as I know you often do, uh, you know, the the invitations open. Um, so, so I mentioned there's there's also a lot of discussion, uh, in fact, more discussion around the home nations and the regions about shifting power away from Whitehall and Westminster and, and, and going out and, and kind of inching our way really towards a kind of federation of countries rather than um, something that's uh, that's a kind of you know united country and, and, and exercising uh, relaxing kind of laws and things. I don't know what what people think about all of that stuff because actually you know the house of lords has got all the headlines but in fact there's there's more stuff in the brown report about um power decentralization i'm not sure what's what people think about that well i mean the report recommends that devolved government is, is strengthened so the presumption that westminster shouldn't intrude upon devolved matters or on the organization or powers of devolved governments is is advanced and I take it if the, those recommendations were implemented, that would do something to take the steam out of the independence movement or not. I'm, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure what the case is for independence, for well, secession, effectively. Now, you know, there is already a devolved government there. So there is a kind of population that's captured by the limits of that devolved government. So that looks like a sort of natural, non-gerrymandered, collection of of people who might take an interest in that question but at the same time I'm, I'm kind of puzzled by I mean it seems like an abstract worry but I think I think no less genuine for that I don't think we could take you know any collection of you know five six million voters somewhere in the UK and support their right to secede I mean the the theoretical problem there is that the the wealthier regions somehow communicate among themselves that they'd be better off and could sustain themselves as an independent country and then seeks to secede from the country of which they are a part. And that that seems like um, a recipe for various types of fragmentation. So that that seems unpromising. I, I suppose it depends really on the on what the impetus for secession is thought to be. And of course, there are lots of different ideas about that. There's a nationalist kind of idea, but there's a kind of more soberly majoritarian idea too. If there is just a bunch of people living presumably contiguously with each other who want to secede, then that's good enough reason to allow them to secede. That's that's what democratic self determination amounts to. But I'm, I'm not I'm not convinced by that majoritarian uh, theory, and I. I'm a little, I'm, I'm made a little nervous by the, the more nationalist version of secession as well. So, yeah, I mean, I, I was wondering what the strengthened devolved government, what that would do to the case for full independence. It's very tricky. I mean, I think that, um, you know, Gordon Brown and the Labour Party in general, you can see why they, it's very difficult for them to support the status quo because there's, you know, the, one of the cases for Scottish independence is that the way Scotland votes is just so infrequently represented. Um, uh, you know, their our views and opinions are never really represented um, by the by the elected government. And Scotland does have a fair amount of devolution at present. Right, we have our own parliament, 
And I would say that having that has increased uh, the desire for independence amongst people in Scotland. So um, I don't know what would happen if um, we we got further further devolution. I think that the sticking points are always the fact that there has to be certain national decisions, and money typically has to be be has to at least to some degree fall within the national remit. So. I mean, at the moment, Scotland has certain tax raising powers that are different from England. In fact, we in Scotland have a uh, pay one percent more income tax than than the rest of the UK, but that's small fry. And it's interesting that the SNP has not um, moved radically away from the taxation uh, policies of the national government. There are many reasons for that, I think. So. There, there has to be some national. There have to be some national agreements, particularly around money and taxation. Even though there can be small variations away from that, and you know, Scotland has its own legal system, its own education system on top of its own parliament, and there's still a desire for further further moves away from centralisation. Let's put it that way. So it's very, it's very hard to, it's very hard to know. I, I have some sympathy for Gerald's thought that, um. Well, why should we, you know, sort of encourage or allow, you know, any group of five to six million people to secede? I think the reason why it's reasonable to allow Scotland to secede is this long history of um, us being a distinct nation with our own, uh, you know, um, our, our own policies on on so much, including law and, ed- and education, those being the two standout um, issues. And also... Uh, distinct political will that has been there, I would say, for a long time. Now, how distinct it is, is a, is a very interesting question. Uh, when you look at survey and polling results, uh, it doesn't seem actually that much different from England on many issues. But what seems very different is that the Scots really want to be different from, from the rest of uh, the UK and think that they're more different than perhaps they actually are. But uh, there's there's so many issues to think through here. But I think um, the thought that we have to make certain national decisions, that no amount of devolution gets us away from that and will not therefore prevent, for example, Scotland wanting to become an independent country. Victoria, you got any thoughts from Design Well, yeah, I mean, living in Ireland obviously um, gives me a different perspective because one thing is Scotland and another thing is Northern Ireland. Um, and yes, devolution is, is really problematic. I mean, we have a parliament and parliament hasn't actually <clears throat> been sitting for, for a very long time now. So in Ireland, in the, in the Republic of Ireland, the biggest party uh, at the moment is Sinn Féin. They're running at uh, more than 30% of the, um, of the votes. And... There, it's almost impossible to see how Sinn Féin are not going to be the dominant party in the Republic of Ireland at the next election. That's going to change everything, obviously. Um, and, and the first thing on their manifesto is a referendum on Northern Ireland. And in Northern Ireland now, the Catholics are actually the numerical majority. If and A lot of people are saying that within 10 years, Northern Ireland will be a very different place. That's going to have a, a, a domino effect on Wales and Scotland, inevitably, you know, whether it's right or wrong. Um, but thinking about Scotland and, and just looking at what has been happening in Northern Ireland, um, I know a lot of people that, are, a lot of my friends in, in Scotland keep talking about wanting 
to rejoin the EU. And absolutely, that would be the right thing to do because Brexit was the biggest own goal uh, that, that could have been scored. But um, it is very difficult to have borders with the EU and non-EU. And I, I don't know whether that's been actually thought through. I mean, it certainly wasn't thought through when when there was the vote on Brexit. Um, no one thought about Northern Ireland. No one thought about what was going to happen to the border. And so if Scotland becomes an, in, an independent nation and they want to rejoin the EU, what would that mean in terms of Brexit? I, it's very, yeah, it's just very difficult. <laughs> I mean, it's it's an issue where political sentiments, I don't think, actually can give you the answer. I mean, the sentiments are very strong. But uh, just looking at Northern Ireland, the reality is it's totally different. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think uh, this is where big abstract thoughts about constitutions and national determination and sentiments, as you say, Vittorio, kind of hits the kind of hard operational rubber. Uh, and we've seen this in Northern Ireland, and, and clearly it was absolutely deplorable the the level of um, indifference towards Northern Ireland during during the Brexit discussions. And it's just, and it's going to happen again, uh, or, or could happen again, as you just indicated. I think the political tectonic plates are moving, and I suspect that. Um, I mean, as you say, within the next few years, there could be a vote in uh, in Ireland, come Northern Ireland, about what happens. And whether, however that vote goes, that will create a certain momentum, just as the 2014 Scottish refer- referendum, I think, has created a certain momentum. And I think that in the next 10 years, there'll be another vote about Europe and about us us realigning ourselves in some way uh, across the UK. I think it's, I think it's pretty inevitable. Um, yeah, I mean, I've got some, I mean, I've got a great deal of sympathy for, for, for people who are kind of just dissatisfied with the current state of UK politics in various of, I mean, not just Scotland, Wales and, and Northern Ireland, but some, some of the regions as well that just don't feel heard. And I suppose that, that that's the positive behind the, the Brown report, right? It's just that he wants power devolved because he because people need to be heard, which in fact goes goes back to, I mean, he said explicitly, goes back to the Brexit vote. Um but I think it's going back to, to Gerald's first thought, it's whether this will do enough or whether it'll just create more impetus for, for people just to to think, well, we're better off we're better off on our own rather than keeping together. I mean, my my gut response in all of these things is we're better off together than being apart. That I mean that's that's my gut response in about many things, not just about the UK. Um, it's about uh, European countries and other things. But I think I think politically over the next ten years it, there's gonna be some big events um that will that will shape things for the next 50 years uh, gerald do you want to come back in yeah i mean uh, so i i agree with much of this um i think yeah so there is a kind of an emotional cultural aspect to this uh, it's not these aren't just hard you know abstract questions of constitutional or political theory um but that makes me think of another kind of puzzle uh, i mean i would i would be extremely sad uh, for the union to be broken up to see Scotland go its own way it would seem like a you know personal loss and yeah however however the border went soft or hard it, it, something something different would happen once I went through Carlisle on the train you know I'd be in a different country not not my country anymore uh, not and that, that would be terrible but you know you're already entering you're already entering a different country when you cross the border. <laughs> 
Well, I'm, I'm entering a different country, but yeah, but, but not a different political jurisdiction, right? I mean, I mean, you know. It, well, there's a different legal system, so there's. Well, look, Fiona. I mean, but the thing is, if people want more than that, then uh, what, what I'm saying is that what we have at the moment is what Scottish nationalists don't want, and I like what we have at the moment, uh, and and they don't want that. So, look, the, the thing, the, the puzzle, the more abstract question is, we'd be losing Scotland, but Scotland would be losing independence. So, why should the vote only go to the people living in Scotland? I mean, what, what, why shouldn't the vote uh, encompass everyone living? in britain that that that, that's the kind of the harder puzzle i i you know we would be losing scotland it's a it's quite an extraordinary statement uh to make i think Um, well scotland would would, would, would be subtracted from the entity we currently have that's the point well i think that's a better way to put it um well i'm not saying that we own scotland i'm saying we are part of something, and then Scotland would leave that thing. I mean, I mean that 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 that's what I meant. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Gerald. Um, <laughs> I, I I know that that's what you think, um, but um, like you know, considering Simon's language too, the thought, you know, well, you know, I think we're always better together. Um, and of course, you did qualify that by saying, well, of course, in Europe too. But you know, from if you're living in Scotland, then the thought is. Yeah, actually, we would really like, you know, we want to be better together, but it's better together in Europe. And that's the bigger constituency. And that's um, where we are more politically aligned. I mean, it's a very interesting thought. Suppose Scotland gained independence and rejoined Europe. What, how, you know, given that that gives you certain advantages and freedoms, and given that there's so much flexibility of, movement at the moment between people uh, between Scotland and England I mean how in practice can you make that work would we see people you know would we have to have a border where where at some point people have to choose okay I am either English or Scottish for nationality purposes um, do we see movement of people can you change that um, can you change that nationality what about you know what about people who live on the border, who work in one place and, and uh, live in the other place, right? There are lots of people for whom that's the case. Yeah, the working out of the logistics of this is so difficult. And that's what we saw uh, with respect to, to Northern Ireland and Brexit. And I think a lot of people were talking about this um, when Brexit was mooted and were thinking there's not a sensible way to make this work. But, um, you know, if we get to the point where Scotland is in Europe and Northern Ireland is in Europe and Wales is in Europe, then it's England that's the odd one out. And it's not what is Scotland going to do with the border, it's what is England going to do with its borders? It's the odd one out and it's the... Um, it's so, you know, in my political fantasy, um, there's uh, <laughs> there's independence for Scotland and uh, we rejoin Europe and that happens uh, to other parts of um uh, the United Kingdom or the former United Kingdom and um, and then that pushes England to rejoin Europe and then maybe we can be all our independent countries uh, within Europe but uh, all playing nicely together that, yeah. that's the yeah. so, so I tell you what if all this happens uh, my, my wife has just come downstairs when we we're recording this and she was smiling at me uh, I mean you know we, we're definitely applying for our Scottish passports we're, we're up there like like no one's business yeah, I mean, I think I think that that could happen, Fiona. But I, but I sus- I suspect that that it will go a different way, and I think there'll be a there there'll be something that will happen in the next ten years where 
I mean, if the UK is together, then there'll be some realignment between the UK and Europe, and then there'll, there'll be another kind of vote, um, either in ten years or fifteen years, about a full full membership rejoin. Um, I, I can't see I, I can't see the current states being sustained. Well, I don't. I, I suppose I don't think either. I don't think either scenario is hugely likely within ten years. Um, right. Okay. Yeah, the, the recent ruling by the Supreme Court that uh, Scotland cannot hold a, an election is no surprise. I don't think it comes as any surprise to the SNP, um, but I think it was, it was a clever move on their part to push that issue and force that issue. So now Nicola Sturgeon is saying, well, we will um, use the next uh, general election as a de facto um, independence referendum, but it's not obvious to me how you can... It's not obvious to me how you push that through. So if uh, Scotland, let's say there's an election and Scotland votes for uh, the SNP or uh, independence uh, part, you know, parties who want independence, then um, what happens next? I mean, I guess those parties then just want to apply pressure to the Westminster government to say, well, we held a de facto referendum, but I don't see why Westminster can't turn around again and say no. Um, yeah. And, and, and I mean, I, yeah, I mean, on this point, I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right. They, they, that, that's exactly what Nicola Sturge and the SNP were trying to do with that, with taking it to the Supreme Court. But I mean, I've got some sympathy for this thought, which I mean, came from Rishi Sunak, but you know, from, from, from many other people as well, is that you can't just declare an election a de facto referendum. I mean, that just gets you into all sorts of political and, and constitutional problems. I mean, I, I've got some problems problems with the Brexit and the Scottish referendum anyway, which I think, you know, shows David Cameron's recklessness in that when I was growing up and doing, looking at history of politics and political theory, I always thought that constitutional changes needed a two thirds majority. And then we suddenly get to 50%. Where did that come from? But anyway, that's yeah. a, that's another matter. Joe, did you want to come back in? So I, I, I mean, like Fiona, I, I, I miss the EU too. And I, I, yeah. I think Brexit was a dreadful own goal and I, I wish we were back, but <clears throat> I, I don't know. Um, I don't know when we'll be in a position to rejoin it. Uh, not not for many years, but of course, things can be fudged and smudged a little bit. There can be new relationships with the EU that, you know, offer more liberal policies and immigration, cooperation and so on. And, you know, the membership of the EU was complex. It was just a, an aggregation of different arrangements and you can you can seek new arrangements that bit by bit add up to, you know, something that's not too far behind what we had. Any more thoughts? No. Come to Ireland. I <laughs> <what> thought. <laughs> uh, so, uh, listen, uh, we can draw this to a close in a moment, but uh, Fiona has to depart for uh, a very important committee meeting. And so in the next part, Gerald, Vittoria and I will continue. But before you go, Fiona, um, any reflections on 2022 and, and what do you think 2023 is going to hold? I suppose the biggest issue on, well, one one big issue that we haven't yet spoken about that's on my mind is um, is health. Um, so I think a lot of people think that COVID is pretty much over. And the question for me is what? happens on that front so I heard um, experts talking about uh, the fact that we have avian flu everywhere in the UK at the moment and that it, uh, it would take a very little for avian flu to mutate um, and become a virus that affects humans in a in a particularly nasty and bad way of course we know that there's um, potential uh, mutations of COVID and so on so I suppose I hope that 
I hope that we're maintaining a readiness to deal with future pandemics, and I'm concerned that we're not. And I'm also incredibly concerned at the state of the health service at the moment. Um, the the reports that we're getting out from the front line by doctors, never mind official statistics, are absolutely terrifying. I mean, really terrifying. Um, people, you know, just not receiving care. It's now routine for people to say, "Oh yeah, someone someone died because they weren't admitted to hospital on time." That's become routine, and I. We, we need to do something um, something radical to support and, and, and get the health service back on its feet. And I don't really see people doing that at present, despite the measures that are being taken. And um, I'm incredibly worried by that. Okay, thanks, Fiona. Uh, I was about to say I, I wish you a, a happy 2023, but I don't know if I, if I can after this. But I do anyway. Um, thanks very much for coming on, uh, Fiona. Uh, and we'll join you in the next part where we'll be talking about more things and finding good cheer. And welcome back. Um, a quick advert for my other podcast, Philosophy Gets Schooled, which is aimed at school students and teachers. Through 2022, we've recorded loads of episodes on moral philosophy and we've been recording on epistemology and philosophy of religion more recently. Coming up, we've got a big episode on lots of key terms and definitions, and we're also doing some stuff on teleological arguments for the existence of God, which I hope will be out in time for Christmas. And Philosophy Gets School is available wherever you get your podcasts like this one. Okay, so let's uh, move on, um, and I'll introduce uh, this item. So the cryptocurrency entrepreneur Sam Bankman-Fried has been in the headlines recently following the collapse of his crypto exchange, FTX. Cryptocurrency is itself a fascinating topic for philosophers and economists, uh, working out what exactly it is uh, and how to categorise it and whether or not it will change things structurally when it comes to money and states uh, long term. Um, what catches my attention, though, is the fact that uh, SBF, as he's known, is a fully signed up believer in the movement known as effective altruism, which is a philosophy driven movement that has a number of strands. And so this item is a rare but interesting case of philosophical ideas directly and more or less immediately affecting what's happening in the news. So, of course, we're going to jump on this uh, as much as we can. Um, the strands of effective altruism are roughly that people should give a good or a great deal of their wealth to charity, certainly far more than they do at the moment. They should do it effectively. It's not just any charity, but only those which will do the most good. And they should work in areas where they can raise them, and people should work in areas where they can raise the most money they can, which is why SBF says he's influenced to go into crypto. The, there are connected strands of thoughts as well in, the, in this whole network of ideas relating to transhumanism and so-called long-termism, the latter essentially saying that we should have some possibly equal regard for future people and act so as to further the interests of billions of them. Uh, there are loads of interesting details, of course, about effective altruism and, and many of the other ideas. Plenty of books and recent news articles about them. Um, a lot of the influential philosophers in this movement are based in Oxford. Um, and it's certainly been influential, but it's controversial as well, not just the effects, but also the ideas behind it. Uh, for example, should we give so much of our wealth to charity? Uh, and thinking about long-termism, do the interests of billions upon billions of people matter, and do they matter as much or nearly as much as the interests of currently existing people? 
Now, this whole collection of ideas has some say at its heart a utilitarianism or something at least utilitarian-like, which roughly put sees the effects of our actions as the only thing that matters and that we should be trying to produce as much human good or things that are useful to humans uh, as we possibly can. But this philosophical stance seems to flatten the moral landscapes. What of promises we make to individuals and our duties we may have to them? Can they just be ignored as we pursue the production of greater or the greatest good? So I've got plenty of views uh, about this. Uh, anyone else got any views? Gerald? Yeah, so as you say, Simon, lots of issues are raised by this. And I think the the thinking behind it is broadly utilitarian. And, and like you, I'm not a utilitarian. But I do want to start, a, you know, a kind of qualified, some qualified praise for utilitarianism. It gets some things right. So let's be clear about that. It's after results, not just good intentions. That seems fine. Sees the need to feed and shelter people now, even before we've built the new Jerusalem. That seems right. It wants our charitable donations to go further, to be maximally effective. That seems to be, that deserves to be a part, an important part of the conversation. So that that all seems fine. I mean, it's practical in a way I admire. Uh, there, are, there are problems. So it's extremely demanding. That's a kind of traditional problem for utilitarianism. But I think there are two more problems for long-termism in particular. I mean, the first is connected to what one kind of utilitarian wants to describe as this eschatology. Uh, what's it after long-term? What would be a morally good, a morally optimal uh, long-term outcome? What, what's the state of affairs we want to see? Well, here, um, the idea seems to be that we're just going to get a very, very large collection of silicon-based post-biological creatures all experiencing some positive conscious experience. And that doesn't seem very appealing to me. They're not um, they're not recognizable as biographical subjects, as biographically organized subjects in the way that we would readily recognize. Um, so part of this is the commitment to what's sometimes called total utilitarianism. Um, utilitarianism isn't just a way of making things as good as they can be for the individuals that exist. Uh, that, that there are just as strong reasons for bringing new individuals into existence as long as they are happy so that there's more happiness overall. Now, I don't really see the force of that or the appeal of that um, <clears throat> principle, even for kind of biological individuals like us, uh, and still less for post-biological individuals. Um, that's one problem. Another problem, and it's been commented on both in connection to long-termism and effective altruism, which is this kind of conceptual moral neighbor, it's pretty concessive. It, it's very concessive to the world, to the structures of the world that exist. So the typical advice will be, look, become a city trader and donate more of your, you know, most of your income to charity. That's a better way to go. It's a more morally valuable life than a life you would lead as you would live as, say, you know, a nurse or a social worker or a teacher. So that seems 
problematic because there seems to be a kind of lack of commitment to making the world, you know, a more just place in which people have fulfilled lives, including fulfilled lives that, that you know, involve caring for other people. So, I, I mean, you know, in short, I mean, so, so it tells you to grab what you can from the world as it is and put it to better use. But we, I think we have the right to think bigger than that. So I, I, think, I think in short, we'd be forgiven for thinking there must be a middle way um, between putting everything on hold until we've built the new Jerusalem and just attending to the need and not the structures that have helped to create it. So I, I would go for the middle way. Great. Thanks, Gerald. Vittorio, any thoughts from you? Yeah. Um, I mean, the cryptocurrency phenomenon is is of interest to philosophers because there is something very metaphysical about it. Yeah, absolutely. It, it is a currency without foundations. And, you know, we can do without foundations in metaphysics. I cannot understand how you can have no foundations in a currency, which is probably why it ended up the way it did. But... Um, there, there is something that I deeply dislike about this whole story. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes you feel like people are suggesting that this character, FBS, as he's known, is some kind of a capitalist Robin Hood, someone who goes into the world of finance but really is there with, with a golden heart to give the, the money away. And I, I really dislike that for two reasons. Um, one is that uh, finance is about capitalism. Capitalism is about profit. To, to, to bring in effective altruism, it's, it's really disingenuous. It's, it's almost like trying to hide what the finance world is, which is all about profit. Um, but And the other thing is... Um, I don't believe in charity as a, for, as a way of reforming um, the, the problems of the modern capitalist system. Um, and the idea that someone is morally superior for giving more in, in terms of, of charity, I think it's the wrong way to look about, uh, at it. Um, charity is not social justice. Social justice is... Uh, is, is a structural issue. Um, and so for someone who was living in the Bahamas in a villa uh, worth um, many millions of dollars to, to, to try to come across as a good guy because they give all their money away as a form of charity, it's just, it's just to miss the point. You know, this Finance is about profit, so I I almost have more respect for the for the nasty capitalists who actually say I'm in it for the money and that's it. That's the system. I'm allowed to do it. At least they're not there's they're, they're, they've been consistent and and yeah. So effective altruism and capitalism in the same sentence. Uh, I I just don't buy it. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it depends where you want to draw the line. Um... So perhaps my horizons are, are too local, <laughs> but I think there are always going to be capital markets. I think the pursuit of profit in a system that's managed in such a way um, that there's a more equitable balance between you know, winners and losers isn't uh, a stupid aim. So 
if, for example, you look at, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not kind of appealing to this as an, you know, um, a triumphant record, but it's, um, it's pretty obvious that, you know, the, the new Labour uh, administration between 97 and 2010 was pretty hospitable towards the money markets, but, but with a redistributive aim. The City of London made a lot of money for the Treasury, and then that money was put to good use uh, to prop up the welfare state and fatten it out. And, you know, I, I think most people think that these were comparatively good years and better years for the welfare state. Uh, you know, of course, they, they didn't they didn't do everything they wanted to do. Poverty traps and so on um, remained a problem. There was more of a gap probably in, well, the, the, you know, inequality increased, but, but, but at the same time, certain problems were fixed, certain poverty problems were fixed. So I think you can, I mean, the long and short of it is that you can cooperate with certain aspects of capitalism um, in order to do good things. And look, there are very few countries in the world where there's a kind of pure, if any, where there's a pure capitalist system. Every economy is mixed. There's market behavior, there's a pursuit of profit, I don't want an economic system in which people, you know, can't be out to better their lot. Um, the what we should be aiming for is that they do it on terms which are not unfair to other people. Um, I think. I think the other problem is that well, if we'd need a kind of such a far-reaching correction to the system we have, then when would the good things be done? So I agree with you, Vittorio, that. You know, it's the structures that matter, and justice, of course, has priority, but things have to be done in the meantime, and we do need a way of accommodating that thought. Um, I was really focusing on the cryptocurrency, which my understanding is that it was totally deregulated, and that's why people were so keen on it, because there were no regulations. And I think that is a problem. <laughs> Because, of course, there's going to be a place for the market system, but the market system has to be regulated. So deregulated market system is absolutely the worst kind of capitalism you can have. And, and so the cryptocurrency, I think it's a really symbolic of the worst type of, of, of the market system. But, uh, you know, this idea that, that the city was actually generating wealth for, for the welfare state these are multinationals and the money is taken out of the system and a system that is based on distribution only um, rather than what um, Martin O'Neill, who was mentioned before, refers to as pre-distribution. Um, you know, you, you, you become at the mercy of those financial institutions that you cannot control because actually most of them are not in your legal jurisdiction. Um, so to, I'm, I'm not, I'm more skeptical that actually it was a system that, that worked. I mean, yes, they gave peanuts uh, to the welfare state. Um, and a lot of people can't afford to, to live in London anymore um, because of it. Yeah, so you're obviously right that the housing market became unbalanced and it's hard to reach these multinational corporations. So, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to get them within the, the net of any particular jurisdiction that wishes to tax them. 
that's a big problem. Uh, and it looks as though it can only be fixed by international cooperation. Now, you're right about the cryptocurrency market. It, look, you know, it looked like the Wild West uh, of capital markets. And of course, it, you know, it, it shouldn't be. Um, but, but I think that makes it somewhat atypical, right? Because it wasn't regulated. Um, I told Simon beforehand, I was determined not to talk about cryptocurrency itself for fear of revealing my profound ignorance. So we'd need pointier heads than mine um, to say something intelligent about it. But I, I, I agree that there's, you know, obviously a need to regulate it. It looks like a highly combustible market and, you know, we've seen what happened. Um, so that, that, that has to be a bad thing and, and calls for some sort of regulation. So there's something that occurs to me. I'm, I'm not going to talk very much about cryptocurrency because my my knowledge horizons stretch only a little further than than Gerald's. Uh, <laughs> although at some point I do want to put on a philosophy of economics module for my students, and, and that will force me to really get into the, into the details of, of it all and think about whether it's a currency or a commodity and how to categorise it and, and so on. They are that that that's now me at the horizons of my knowledge, one step further than than Gerald. <laughs> coming back to to all of the the, the guys in effective altruism and, and long termism, um, I mean, I've been reading around on the on the websites and various things, and it and it occurs to me just just going back to to, to where we started with the discussion between the two of you about the the structural problems that the advice seems to be pretty much um, you know as was to SBF. Um, just you know, go in and make as much money as you can, and then donate it in an effective fashion. And actually, that, that there's there's something good about that. I mean, that they've they've raised pledges in the billions, uh, and I don't think that that's to be that's to be to be scorned. I mean, is Joel's opening comments? But what strikes me is interesting. I couldn't get anyone from from effective altruism on, onto the program. If, if you're listening, you're very welcome to come on along with Gordon Brown. What strikes me as interesting, I mean, put it into, into philosophy lingo, is that it's all about act utilitarianism or act consequentialism. And there's been no discussion at all, of, as it were, of rule utilitarianism or rule consequentialism, that actually they should be encouraging not just people to go into the city, but people to go into politics to try to change the system and to have fairer rules, as it were. And we have fair rules, you know, but which rules? Well, the rules are justified in terms of whether it will have the 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 best long-term greatest consequences, but we need certain rules in place and that might need structural reform. And that's going to come from the political or political economic arena. And it's been, it's odd that they don't encourage people to do that sort of thing. So it's all, it's all very much the philosophy behind it is very much act utilitarian. So all that we're interested in is particular acts and what it will do for the long term and just raising the most money or whatever, and, and not about changing the rules and, and affecting the, the structures and the system. And that seems to me, that's, that's a bit strange. Um, but anyway, go on, Gerald. Yeah, I think it is a bit strange, isn't it? I, I guess once philosophy enters the public realm and addresses each of us, then perhaps it, it has a tendency to address us in a way, if you're a utilitarian, that's going to seem act utilitarian. So act utilitarianism says everyone should act in a way that makes the biggest impact, right? Um, that, that creates the best outcome. But... It's pretty obvious when you think about it, not everyone can become a billionaire cryptocurrency <laughs> trader. Uh, not everyone can be a city trader. Not, not, not everyone can command these huge salaries, which are then put 
to good use. I mean, I mean, so within the utilitarian stable, um, you know, there are lots of thoughts that allow differentiation of function and decision making. Frank, the Australian philosopher Frank Jackson, has this uh, crowd control idea. Even if you're a utilitarian, I mean, let's say, I mean, the idea is we're stewards at a stadium. And even though everyone's safety in the stadium matters, I've got, you know, I, I've got responsibility for stand A and you've got responsibility for stand B and Vittorio has responsibility for stand C. And so if, if someone's in trouble in stand A, Vittorio and you, you don't care about that. You're just looking at stands B and C respectively because that's my job. That, that doesn't mean that you're kind of defying the thought that everyone has equal value. It's just that we've divvied up the labour uh, in order to create better outcomes overall. And we can apply that model to charity. So, it, it, you know, it seems that some people can continue to lavishly fund, uh, you know, dog rescue centres, whilst other people are focusing on mosquito nets and malaria tablets and things like that. And if we just, you know, prepare to just take a step back and allow some differentiation of purpose and function and activity, like the crowd control model suggests, then, you know, who's to say that we wouldn't get to pretty good results overall? I mean, um, so yeah, I mean, why not do that? Why make it a kind of challenge to each person so each person thinks that even though they're doing a great job as a social worker or a nurse and are just about holding together the bills and don't have much to donate um that they're you know morally inferior because they could be giving most of a much larger salary away to charity but still living pretty comfortably in a fancy flat in london so uh you know i, I get a feeling that must um turn lots of people off uh, and that's just needless. And surely a sensible utilitarian doesn't want to alienate anyone. Uh, they want to invite them in to the moral tent rather than um, yeah, excluding them on the grounds that they're simply not rich enough to count as a morally decent person. So it looks like a known goal from utilitarian's um, point, own point of view. Yeah, good. Thank you. Listen, let's leave that discussion there and let's um let's look back and and look forward uh Janus like. So I asked Fiona earlier on about 2022. Um what are the kind of defining uh events or or moments or thoughts for the two of you about uh, the year that's coming to an end? Well, it was a pretty rough year, wasn't it? Um war in Europe political disintegration in the UK, uh, inflation, fuel poverty, uh, the pandemic kind of left us, but is rumbling in the background. Who knows when it'll be back with new variants or wh whether there'll be other kind of pandemics. So it, it, we do seem to be in a kind of troubled time. And I think it's going to be a rough winter. I mean, I mean, but just one, one thought, I mean, I think there are plenty of people at the end of 2019 and 20 who'd have thought things can't get worse. But we know that things did get worse, right? Uh, we knew all about that in March 2020. Um, that, there had to be room, social and room in the world for things to get worse, which actually tells us that 
things weren't as bad as they could have been. Um, so um, things could get worse. Maybe things will get better. There are signs of hope in the world. I mean, uh, the repressive Iranian regime is in trouble and is making concessions. Um, Trump's star in America seems to be waning. Bolsonaro got booted out of Brazil. At some point, one assumes there's got to be some sort of settlement in the Ukraine. Maybe the oligarchs will get tired of Putin and push him out. I mean, perhaps it's, this is just psychological. I, I can only be so pessimistic. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not a professional pessimist, and I refuse to abandon hope. So I, I, I hope things will get better. But I'm not expecting at least the first few months of 2023 to be much better and it'll probably get a bit worse yeah um i'm going to um highlight two aspects of 2022 um one which is very ugly and the other one which i think could be rather beautiful uh, the ugly bit is is the rise of the continuing rise of the extreme right now i mean i i for my sense, I have an Italian passport, and every time I meet someone, I feel like I ought to apologize for the fact that we voted a neo-fascist prime minister um, in the heart of Europe. Um, I, I'm seriously concerned because, you know, you could dismiss it as, oh, you know, these are just Italians doing crazy stuff, but you have an extreme right-wing party in, 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 in Sweden. And so if Sweden turns... To the extreme right, I think that's really, really worrying, and I fear that that Italy could actually um, ruin it for the rest of Europe. Um, uh, the Vox Party, extreme right wing party in Spain, it's going to feel um, stronger now. Uh, Le Pen has been getting closer and closer to um, to become to to to. to winning uh, presidential elections in France. And, and of course, you know, I'm sorry to say it, but in the UK, you know, Brexit was, you know, extreme right, um, running riot. So I, I think, and yes, it's true what Gerald said, you know, Trump was not reelected, Bolsonaro was not reelected, but it was very close. <laughs> and, it could, and it's not over yet. Uh, it could still go other way. And uh, I mean, there was a, a coup or attempted coup in Peru only 24 hours ago. I, I, we're not out of the woods. So I'm, I'm, I'm yeah, I, that's, that's, that's the ugly side of 2022. The beautiful side is the protest of the women uh, of Iran. I'm, I'm absolutely mesmerized by what they're doing. I, my admiration for them, standing up to a brutal dictatorship, and they're just not letting go. Um, now, it's early days. We don't know how that's going to end. There's going to be more bloodshed, but it's such a powerful moment in, in world politics and gender politics and national politics because of course there's there's the whole Kurdish issue there so like like Gerald you know we we have a duty to be optimistic just a little bit and and I really want I really want them to succeed now we haven't spoken about the world cup obviously but um that moment when 
the Iranian players refuse to sing the national anthem. I mean, that's going to be my memory of this World Cup. I mean, such 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 a powerful moment. Um, so yeah, that's 2022. So Simon, what about you? What about me? Uh, so I suppose I mean partly because I've uh, done so many programs about it. But my abiding memory of 2022 is what's been going on in in Ukraine, which which Gerald mentioned. And I think uh, I mean quite rightly, you know, looking at what's happening in Iran right now, uh, you can only admire the bravery. You know, you have to admire the bravery of of Ukraine, which has got you know one of the great world powers in its land, and it's and it's it's kind of beating them back. Um, it's be, obviously the f- wars ebbed and flowed. It might well ebb and flow again, but I mean, no one would have expected they'd have put up such a such a fight. And indeed, in in many parts of the country, beaten the Russians back. I think it's just incredible. And actually, I, I will say as well, you know, there've been a number of brave people in Russia who have been. I mean, it's a different sort of situation, but you know, I think in some respects, just as just as brave, where they've been. Um, demonstrating uh, against Putin and, and showing support for people in Ukraine. I mean, incredibly, incredibly brave. Um, so that gives me, that, those are things that, that, I mean, that's, that stand out memories for me about um, uh, this year, but also kind of, you know, worries in the background. One thing we haven't mentioned is, is climate change, which I think is just getting worse and worse and worse. And living here in Kent, I mean, it's just a small thing really compared to what other people have, suffered but i mean it was just roastingly hot it was just horrible and then i think about what's happened to various parts of africa without any food what's happened in pakistan in the last month or so the huge floods and you can go on and on and on i mean it's just horrible so you know i but what i what i wish for in 23 and then we'll come on to you two is in some respects political stability and in other parts political change and similarly, stability for parts of the of the world in, in other respects, but also a huge amount of, of action to try to to fix things. Um, and that that may come. I think we we are reaching certain tipping points. I think when it comes to climate and and politics, but I think it's going to be a a hell of a year coming up, and it's going to get even worse if, as Fiona says, you know, there's there's any avian flu that jumps and mutates. Well, let's, you know, there's going to be something that will happen in 23 that we weren't expecting. Um, so I'm looking out for, for that one in April or May. Um, <laughs> what about the two of you about 23? Yeah, I, well, like, like you, Simon, political stability would be nice. The right kind of political change would be nice. It seems very, very difficult, politically difficult for countries to commit to something that's going to make a real difference. And I suppose what might make the difference is that, you know, a green economy program, which ticks certain boxes, is seen to be successful and there's something to emulate by other countries. I mean, I I suppose this is a a situation in which no one wants to kind of go over the top first. They're waiting for other people to do it. Um, But of course, we're running out of time. I take that point. Um, but, but I think there is awareness that there's a kind of, uh, I mean, people are very parochial about this and it's, it's kind of hard to have a vivid appreciation of what's quite at stake. But we are seeing, you know, weather patterns. I mean, which are, of course, local, but we're, we're seeing local weather patterns 
that are so strange that surely everyone has cottoned on by now. I mean, I was at a residential workshop in Derbyshire in, in July, you know, on days that are so hot that I just about got there on the trains before the trains stopped working altogether. And I, 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 I left the kitchen to wander out to the yard to have a coffee before it started one morning about 8.30 and just the waves of heat bouncing across the Derbyshire fields. It's like being, you know, on a particularly hot day in Sicily. It's, it's just amazing. Um, people, people are being affected by this weather, not not just in terms of their health, but just just like the oddness of it. Um, so, what does that mean? I think it means that people have they've lost or they're beginning to lose. Uh, any kind of alibi for putting their head in the sand and pretending that nothing's up. They know that something's up. Um, and hopefully uh, there is a kind of growing appetite to support measures that will uh, try and tackle the change. I mean, I'm, I'm aware of how kind of um, feeble that sounds, um, to be honest. It, it takes political will and it just takes... I think it's going to take some pretty entrepreneurial politicians who can see an opportunity to lead the charge on this and get rewarded for it politically. And that doesn't seem impossible. I, I, I certainly hope it isn't, because that seems to be our only chance. I often re reflect back on, on this um, phenomenon of, of the COVID-19 because it was such a radical um, crisis that you would have hoped that it would have been the start of some real change. And um, it hasn't happened. I think the, um, the dominant rhetoric was how soon can we get back to normal? Um, and of course the normal is the problem. And so, so that was a missed opportunity. <laughs> um, and so what, what can happen, you know, in 2023? Well, I, I don't believe in, in, in change happening um, overnight. Um, from that point of view, I, I don't believe in revolutions. I, I just hope that people realize um, that the only thing they can do is, is to get involved. Um, it, I mean, my biggest fear is political apathy. And, and so I'm not looking for any major changes because sometimes people are, you know, if, if you wait for, for a solution to come and solve everything and it doesn't happen, then you kind of give up, um, which is kind of convenient and lazy. And I think the point is really to just to get involved um, and once you get involved, change is slow and it takes time. Um, and maybe all I want from 2023 is the start of a process where more and more people actually get off their sofas and, 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 and you know, small change. I mean, that's, I suppose that it ties back with the reasons why I'm intolerant of effective altruism. You know, it's, uh, you know, you, you just do your little bit. Um, yeah. Yeah. So there you are. I mean, I think, I think Victoria, the signs are good that more and more people do want to be involved. So I hope you're right about that. Um, but, but just a point 
I mean, I, I, I know this because, I mean, you wrote a book about it, um, about hoping that the pandemic would lead to, you know, more systemic changes. To be honest, I'm not too surprised by the fact we just got back to normal. Why is that? Because we missed the normal, because it is such a kind of um, alienating and, and fearful time that what we could hope for, the only thing we could really hope for, um, or we could reasonably hope for, was a kind of back to normal settings. That, that, that seemed to be reward enough, even though, of course, the world uh, that preceded the pandemic was unjust and the injustice was manifest in the way that the pandemic affected people. That's all true. But, but nonetheless, it was an emergency. It's an emergency that I think many of us find it hard to revisit in our memories. Um, we just want to get back to normal. I, I mean, I, I would settle for kind of small victories, like, you know, better pandemic preparation or preparation for potential pandemics. Uh, that had obviously atrophied before the pandemic hit us. There could be no excuse for that kind of apathy. Now, we, we know that this kind of thing can happen. If it happened once, there's absolutely no reason why it won't happen again. Um, I mean, I, 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 spe- I mean I, I'd, be, I'd be surprised, actually, if, I, if there isn't another big crisis of that nature um, in my lifetime. So we'd, we'd better be ready for it. Well, I do hope that in 2023... This podcast continues because um, be clearly what we need is more philosophy. I mean, that, that's, that's the problem. <laughs> yeah, that's that's one hopeful sign of 2022, isn't it? That we we started this podcast. Um, in fact, perhaps on that note, we might draw things to a to a close. <laughs> um, and um, in their absence, thank Fiona and uh, and Rebecca, and wish Rebecca. Well, uh, Gerald, thanks very much for giving up your time and coming on today. Thanks very much, Simon. Uh, Vittorio, thanks to you as well. Thanks for for inviting me. Uh, And thanks also to all my guests who've come on the show this year. I've enjoyed all our chats, and I hope you have as well. Many thanks to you for listening, not just to this episode, but also supporting us throughout 2022 all being well we will be back for a third series or season as i have to call it on on apple and google um we'll probably be starting the first couple of months of the new year uh meanwhile i hope the rest of this year brings you health and happiness goodbye (laughs) 